Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined today by Daleen Joy Fisher, the Assistant Provost, Dean and Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. She's the co-author of Academic Writing and the Emerging Scholar, and her new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, is all about Jane Austen and Victorian writers, and it's called Resisting the Marriage Plot, Faith and Female Agency in Austen, Bronte, Gaskell, and Wollstonecraft. Uh, and I quote from the blurb on the uh, with the publicity. Daleen explores the work of four beloved female novelists, Jane Austen and Bronte, Elizabeth Gaskell, and Mary Wollstonecraft. Each of these authors, she argues, appealed to the Christian faith through their heroines to challenge cultural expectations regarding women, especially in terms of marriage. Although Christianity has all too often been used to suppress women, Fisher demonstrates that in the hands of these novelists and through the actions of their characters, it could also be a transformative force to liberate women. And Daleen joins me now from the States. Hello to you. Hello, it's good to be here. Oh, thank you. And thank you for this fascinating book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Now, Daleen, Christianity has indeed often suppressed women, but how is Christianity used by these writers to liberate women? Well, I think that in order to answer that question, we have to you know, start at a little bit of the beginning and think about the um, narrative of the fall of man and how that story has been told and, and retold. There's not much there biblically for us to know exactly what um, went down in that circumstance, but my study really begins with a look at John Milton and Paradise Lost and his interpretation of, of Eve at that point. And obviously, we have to acknowledge what scripture says. Eve was obviously um, a bit of a culprit in the fall, in the fall of man. But the King James Version, as my book points out, indicates that she gave, you know, the apple to Adam who was with her, which as I was, you know, reading that and, and considering Paradise Lost, which is what, such a beautiful, beautiful piece of literature. We love this. But John Milton's work was so paradigmatic in terms of like how we perceive the fall and what was the role of women in that. And it's just very easy for us in human nature to shift our focus, you know, to blame someone else, right? And so women are physically weaker and always have been, and we always will be. That's just, that's just the way it is. And so it's just going to be the case that one group will be tempted to oppress another, um, you know, and, and that's just sort of how it's been. So Christianity and reading scripture through a really black and white lens without properly contextualizing that, considering genre, considering the audience, we all have this tendency, like it's human nature to want to force it to say what we want. And, you know, I really use the word feminist cautiously. And I always have used that word because it's fraught with a lot of um, connotations that as a Christ follower, I find a bit confronting, um, but Christianity in the past, if you read Ephesians 5, if, if you look at the, the, the fall and you take scripture out of context, it's easy to justify the oppression of an entire, you know, half of the population. And fair enough, because, you know, it's, it's a bit of like the survival of the fittest in a sense. And so, 
um, manipulating that narrative in order to maintain control is a very natural thing to do. And I would even say under, understandable. And, you know, it's, it's by providence that we're, and I won't say lottery because it's by God's will that we're either born male or female. And I don't eat for even half a second sit here and say that I wouldn't be tempted to the same thing or wouldn't have been at that historical moment had I been a man. So, yeah, I think that's really important. And I want that to come through in my writing that I'm not, you know, after, um, <laughs> you know, the males in this world at all. It's just, it is what it is. And, and, and as Christ followers, we're subject to that same type of temptation. And I think it happened a lot throughout history. Yes, I think Eve gets a very bad rap in the cre in interpretations of the creation account. My, I've always argued Adam was the one to blame. He was completely irresponsible. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's there's this side of me that wonders, like, if you if you consider that situation, was he looking over her her shoulder, sort of, you know? Because I have kids, I have four children, and and usually there's one who does the action and one who's standing back to see what happens when that happens. And you know, I just. I, they were there. They were both there. Um, so Christianity has been an oppressive force, unfortunately. I mean, it's, it's, you can read, you know, through scripture at different points, Paul's always writing to, you know, the churches and saying, Hey, this person's manipulating what I said, don't let them do that. Um, and, and so that's a, going to be a temptation. And I think something that we have to guard against as Christ followers. Yeah, how did Christianity in this period that you write about, late 18th and through to the, what, the middle of the 19th century, how did Christianity at this period actually drive feminist thought? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Well, one of the things that I draw out in the book is um, William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. And one of the things that he says, this was 1765, is um, in the eyes of the English law, men and women are one flesh, and that one flesh is the man. Um, and that's the odd, that's the odd thing that was manipulated time and time again. But what what I saw happening, um, actually, my master's degree, um, I really focused a lot in on on Milton, and that you saw that in this text as well. And what I noticed was that as women were gaining education. And as the Bible was put in print and they're learning to read from scripture and they're learning to read because of the novel, reading becomes democratic, reading becomes accessible and women are reading the scripture and they're going, wait, <laughs> you know, what is happening here? I don't think that I, th that I'm looking at this, right? I don't think society is looking at this correctly. And so I think as women get access to the novel, which is what I love about this is it's a secular form. It's a secular genre. As they're reading more of the novel, it actually opens up the word to them, I believe. And they're seeing more and they're not just being told what scripture says. Right. So this is kind of going back to taking the Bible out of Latin and putting it into the common tongue. It's it's actually putting that into the hands of women and they're reading that and they're, they're finding empowerment and they're finding freedom and they're finding liberation as a result of the fact that, Hey, I can have a personal relationship with God. And not only do I not need a priest, right? I don't, I, I don't need the Catholic church. I don't need somebody to mediate that, but I also don't need my husband to intervene for me when it comes 
to God. And Mary Wollstonecraft actually talks a lot about this because she contends that you might find yourself very blessed and attached to a benevolent husband, a kind man, but what happens if you're not? And women couldn't afford to be placed in that position. So my argument is that as women are reading the word, as, as the novel opens up their ability to interpret that because they're, they're just better readers, they're finding that they can have a relationship with God. And that, that is above man's law. That, is, that doesn't matter what William Blackstone says um, about the commentaries on the laws of England, <laughs> because she has to answer to God and God alone. And so um, that's hugely empowering because we do serve a loving God and we do serve, you know, this great power who, who intimately knows us and created us. And I, I argue throughout that these women give that type of agencies to their fictional heroines as sort of this, you know, avatar for how they want to see things playing out culturally as well. You write quite a bit in the book about this thing called coverture, which, um, mm-hmm. what was it and, and why was it so horribly oppressive? Well, I think it goes back to the William Blackstone statement that I mentioned earlier, that it, the, the idea of coverture is that a woman is covered by the man. So it, it's a little bit of an odd construction that it's almost sounds weird to our ears because in most of our Western culture, you know, our husbands are more companionate. We have more egalitarian marriage, but it's literally this idea that you lose your identity as you're married because a woman would have been, this is why it's so interesting in, and I don't focus on Emma um, in the novel, but in Jane Austen's novel, Emma, Emma you know, is powerful throughout the novel because she's not married and, and no one else owns um, they don't have her money. Coveture would be, I'm getting married and I'm covered by my husband. He becomes that one flesh. And so what I argue throughout the text is this idea that legally being covered by my husband. And I don't think people realize that like women get married and the ring that their great grandmother gave to that woman on her deathbed, you know, it's now her husband's. She has no property. So she's completely and utterly covered by her spouse. So what happens in this case is I argue that because that's so culturally accepted and like legality in the law, that then that becomes spiritually manipulated, right? And then we have this idea of federal headship where everything is just following through Adam. And, you know, Milton talks about this. He for God only, she for God and him. It's, it's, it's like this egregious overreach of male authority that, that's not even complementarian, which, as I note in the book, is many Orthodox Christ followers follow a complementarian view of scripture in terms of gender roles, and that's fine. But it's, it's maybe the worst possible um, <laughs> extent of what complementarianism might be in, in its worst form. Um, coveture basically means you don't have an identity as a woman. And, you know, you may be leading to this question, but I think that it's, it's worth noting to say that that loss of identity is odd because at the same time, while the woman was, was stripped of this legal agency 
And then it's turned into this like stripping of spiritual authority. Oddly, there was this concept of, you know, angel in the house at the, the, at the turn of the century where a woman was supposed to be so good, so pure. And I argue, and not much in the book, this is probably me just adding some commentary here, that that need to be so perfect is oppressive. <laughs> I mean, that's who can, who can do that? So the woman's supposed to be, her beauty is spiritual. Her, like how beautifully she plays the piano becomes this spiritual thing. And the man by marrying and becoming one flesh with the woman, thereby like acquires her goodness as a result of the union. And then he gets to like hold that for himself. And yet at the same time, oddly, the woman really doesn't actually have any authority in that. It's almost like, and this might be too strong of a word, but it's like a vampire, you know, eating the soul and the goodness of the woman in that case. So coveture, I just think that this weird turning point of revolution around that late 1790s, which is where I start my study in earnest after the setup of Milton, it's revolutionary. Women are looking for that freedom for themselves. It's, it's, it's echoing all over the world at this point in history. And they're kind of fed up with this idea of coveture. Yes, and, I mean, you, you talk about Jane Austen, and I'm, I'm mm -hmm. re reminded of Mrs. Bennett, who was so marvelously played by that English actress in the BBC oh. series. And I can't remember her name, sadly. But Mrs. Mm -hmm. Bennett, who, I mean, the, the marriage market is just presented as an utterly ruthless commercial business, isn't it? Mrs. Bennett mm -hmm. is selling her the daughters off almost. Yeah. 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 It, is, it is sad, but it's also an actual reality. But it hinges on the idea of trafficking. I mean, you know, we, and I, at one point when I was writing this, I almost went there and I, and I actually had some discussions with my research supervisors about, you know, they're in um, the last chapter on Elizabeth Gaskell's Ruth, when Ruth is, is, is uh, seduced by her lover and he takes her away. At one point she's asking to leave and he actually just says, basically, no, you're going to London with me. To me, it was like that she was trafficked. That was like human trafficking. But Mary Wollstonecraft often, often, way, way, way earlier you know, in the 1790s famously says, hey, marriage is um, similar to legalized prostitution. Oh, what a terrible thing to say. And yet at the same time, how true in many cases, these poor girls, um, you know, they're a financial burden to their parents. And Mrs. Bennett, you know, they're she's a terrible character in a lot of ways, but yet she reflects an, a reality of just this sheer desperation that I don't want my girls to be without financial security. And marriage is the only way to get there. I mean, you basically get, you know, you get to be married. Um, there's prostitution as an option, <laughs> or you can be a governess or, you know, really, really working class. And now it's really important for me to know that the novels that I that I cover are pretty much middle-class, you know, novels. And that isn't really genuinely reflective in all cases of each class of women or people from different cultures. These are people who could write novels, who could read novels, who had the means to be a part of those novels. But the marriage market was a huge discussion at this point. And, you know, if you consider the 
thought process of women and, and young ladies in that area or during that era, they didn't have a lot of say. I mean, the, the best they could hope for was just to be given to a kind man. And so the marriage market became really important because the more you had to offer as a woman, the more chance of securing the, you know, wealthiest, the kindest, the, the best, because men had a lot of picks, you know, they, they could pretty much do what they want. During the mid 1800s, there was an idea that women in England were, they were literally called redundant because there were just too many. So what were they to do with these women who had no, no ability to provide for themselves in terms of a career, maybe couldn't find for themselves a husband. So it was very incredibly competitive. And so to be a woman during that time, during a competitive marriage market, who's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't really care about that. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to write this, these books, these ladies, these Christian women who, who's, who stepped aside and, and away from that idea and made it on their own without entering what they, many of them considered to be corrupt apart from Elizabeth Gaskell. That was, that was revolutionary. Yes. And the novel genre presumably had by this stage given women a voice and a very powerful voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the opening lines to one of my chapters just talks about, I think it was William Ludlow who talked about women as using the novel very effectively to do God's work. So it wasn't just that they had a voice, but they were using that voice in like a really powerful way as, as modern Christ followers. I think that we're missing it when we don't use the genres and the forms that are available to us to enter those really powerful, necessary conversations that deal with, um, you know, the goings on in our world today. And the fact that these women did it was really, really great. And of course, in many cases, they're writing with, you know, male names in order to, to conceal their identity, which is just, you know, um, shocking. And I think it was especially shocking for the Brontes. So if you ever, um, you know, visit Hoth, I think that's how you pronounce it. You, you have more English background than I do. Hayworth in the North and you mm. visit, you visit um, their home. They, they called it Howith while I was there, but you know, I'm very American, so I don't know. Um, but they were tiny. You see their dresses on there. They look like they were, you know, 10 year old girls. So these tiny women um, who are writing these powerful stories would have proven very shocking um, because they're, they're writing about things that they shouldn't know about, you know, themes that would have been very provocative at the time. And, and so these women are using the novel. They're not afraid to say what needs to be said. I think, and I am those who write novels and get into the nitty gritty of the day, our daily lives have to have a lot of um, courage to tell the truth. And I think these women did. Um, so, I mean, yeah. 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 They're fascinating. Aren't they? We mentioned Hayworth or Haworth or however you want to pronounce however it. However we this, pronounce this place it. In Yorkshire. Sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me about the book was how much of an Anglican background and how Anglican evangelicalism had really influenced mm -hmm. a lot of these women in that period, late 18th, early 19th century. How mm -hmm. did their faith, and they all come from slightly different faith backgrounds, don't they? Yeah. How, did, how did they utilize their faith to try and create change through their writing? Well, I think that, you know, William Wilberforce 
wrote this really powerful treatise, um, Practical View of Christianity. And I think it, it ends something like comparing almost Christians with altogether Christians. And he's basically calling out English society and saying, hey, you know, our faith has become ceremonial and you're coming off the tail ends of just this ration, this, this period of rationality at the end of the 1700s that could almost take that pendulum a little bit too far in one direction where, hey, not if, if you have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, you know, um, John Wesley talks about like the warming of his soul, right? If you have this encounter with the Holy Spirit, you're not just going to have a change in behavior, like thought, your, your behavior is going to actually need to change. And Wilberforce was just completely convinced that if there was a revolution in manners, that revolution in manners would have to come through this idea of transformation of the heart. And I love that. And so this rallying cry of transformation of the heart is throughout the text. And I talk about that in the book, I think probably too much repetition about that, but it's just such a huge part of that. So whether we're talking about, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft, and, you know, it could be argued, it'll be interesting to see um, <laughs> on the other side of this earth, which one of these authors I get to talk to in heaven, but Probably Mary Wollstonecraft, I hope so. I really do. Mary Wollstonecraft is this great, um, you know, she's very rational and she's a dissenter, but she also like keeps her faith with the Anglican church. And she was very concerned with this transformation of the heart, which she believed was prompted through correctly ordered thinking. And Jane Austen was very much a traditional Anglican who had great respect for evangelicalism. And in the text I talk about, um, she writes a letter to her niece, Fanny. And Fanny is a little bit worried because she's kind of liking this man who, you know, might be an evangelical. And what is she supposed to do with that? And Jane Austen is like assuring her, it's okay. I think, you know, those who are evangelicals for the right reason are probably the happiest of all. Um, Anne Bronte's probably the most evangelical, well, she is without a question, the most evangelical of all the authors. Um, her family was, I think, in the best sense of the word evangelical in that she really believed that a transformation of the heart would um, create change. And she was brokenhearted throughout her entire life. Um, well, as soon as her brother Branwell started behaving very, very poorly, and they were just always wanting him to like see that change, to have that change. Her dad was so loving to him. He kind of got a bad rap. Elizabeth Gaskell wrote a um, biography of Charlotte Bronte and, and kind of painted him in a poor light. But the fact is, is um, his son Branwell would walk to um, the pub in town almost every night and he would just drink himself to the ground and his father would walk down there late and bring him home. And he would literally put him in his room, I think maybe even in his bed at night to prevent Branwell from, um, you know, killing himself. At one point he like started something on fire. Um, so that was a big part of just like the heart behind it. And Elizabeth Gaskell saw transformation of the heart as reform. So I think I talk in the book that it starts with revolution and it sort of ends with reform. So that we have these revolutionary late 1790s, around 1850, people are like, okay, we've been putting up with this long enough, let's change some of these laws. And Elizabeth Gaskell was very reform-minded in her faith. And that meant 
serving um, the working class people. That meant, you know, walking among those people who maybe other people of upper middle class, high class wouldn't associate with. Um, the Unitarians were very good about really being willing to get their hands dirty in that process. So um, I think the way that their faith li lives out is very practical um, for every single one of these authors. That transformation of the heart, they, there was just this little thing about the evangelical movement at that time where that it's got to come from the right place or it doesn't stick. And I think that's what that transformation of the heart is. And I think it's, we could probably say it was like a quickening of the Holy Spirit <laughs> for each of them. And they, they, they do such a great job, in my opinion, of being very subtle with their characters and their heroines. And I think today um, we tend to be so just, you know, over the top and just in your face. And maybe some of that subtle nuanced work is lost that we get to see in the novels of these really brilliant women um, and these really brilliant women who all claim Christianity um, and they do just a fantastic job with it. And, and I, you can see it playing out in their novels very, very well. Mm. How did these novels transform society then? Well, I think there's a, a back and forth between how they're transforming society and how they're communicating about what they're seeing in society around them. Um, so I think of these as cultural artifacts and a good cultural artifact is going to both reflect and sort of burn into society as a fire itself, you know, these changes. So they transform what's happening around them because for example, let me, let me start with Jane Austen. I think she's the most obvious one. As I mentioned earlier, you know, this idea of women and men being one flesh and that flesh being the, the man and this really outrageous marriage market where women are losing um, all, they have no control over their, their money. The companionate ideal of marriage was so new, early 1800s. It's kind of the first time, um, and Lawrence Stone does great work, his, you know, on, on the companionate marriage and he talks about family in England, just, just wonderful to read, but he spends a lot of time discussing this and even just introducing in the form of fiction, the possibility that yes, while you must consider things like <laughs> the financial aptitude, if you want to put it that way of your male suitor, you also need to think about whether or not there can actually be love. And each of these novels does a wonderful job of taking the reader past simple, practical, the, the practical need for marriage. And they almost paint it as sinful. And, and I actually think that this is revolutionary, that if you're just getting married for financial, a financial transaction, is it not a bit like Mary Wollstonecraft said, which is this is legalized prostitution. And if we shouldn't be doing that, then what should we be doing? And what might that look like? Well, when you have women writing about what that might look like to them, that's very helpful. In fact, I always tell young men that I come across and they're like, so should I read Jane Austen? I said, don't you dare get married without reading Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> you know, like that, that is, a, that would be terrible. 
you need to you need to understand what it is that a woman is seeking. So it transforms society because it gives us a pathway. It gives us a, something to like hold on to, not as an ideal that must be reached, but it's just as a possibility that hey, we can have moments of love. We can have moments of connection. We can have moments that are not just about this transactional cold because because let's think about this biblically like that's not that's not the bride of christ that's not the church christ doesn't love the church that way and if if you know ephesians 5 is supposed to tell us anything about what marriage is supposed to look like it definitely doesn't look like the marriage market and it definitely doesn't look like you know this financial transaction it looks like companionship it looks like somebody who's willing to go out of their way and um you know love their spouse in these sacrificial ways. So these women are embodying a fiction, these narratives that our cultural consciousness, you know, consciousness desperately needs in order to, you know, change what marriage looks like. Because this is new, this is revolutionary. I mean, I think that's kind of hard to, for us to, to get because we very much expect the companion of ideal. They didn't. Um, so um, that was that was a huge point of reform, I think. Mm. We could we could talk for hours about the subject. I mean, I would have loved to have got into the nitty gritty of the novels, but there we are. We've had our half hour, so perhaps we can have you back at some other time. Fascinating, absolutely. It's a fascinating read. So, it's from Intervarsity Press America, IVP America. Uh, it's called "Resisting the Marriage Plot." I'm thinking of Mrs. Bennett. Plot is an appropriate <laughs> word for Mrs. Bennett, isn't it? Faith and Female Agency in Austin, Bronte, Gaskell and Wollstonecraft. And I've been talking to Daylene Joy Fisher, the Assistant Provost, Dean and Associate Professor of English at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. And Daylene, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter you'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.